Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Welcome to Home Education Matters, and I'm very excited to be joined by Catherine Sneep today. And we are going to be discussing the importance of how you choose your GCSE subjects, the kind of order that you might do them in, the different ages that you might want to tackle them, and all the all the huge range of subjects that are available to us. So first of all, hello, Catherine. Very nice to hello. have you with us. Thanks for having me. And could you tell us a little bit about your home education journey and what brought you to where you are now? Oh, that's a super question. So I identify a lot with people who find themselves to be reluctant home educators. Um, Home education wasn't my intent from the beginning at all. Um, But my youngest son managed to be excluded from school at the age of four. And it was very clear that the school environment wasn't going to suit him at all. He he couldn't cope even at that young age with the school environment um, for many, many different reasons. And so the only option available was home education. And I kind of thought, well, my eldest wasn't having the best of times. And so if I was going to home educate one, we'd all, we'd become an entirely home education family. Um, and I thought if I can avoid things like the school run and having to home educate one child during one set of time frame and then rush to get the other one to school if I could avoid that, that would work well. And so we started really early. I will say that my kids learned how to read and write at school, which was fantastic. And then I took over from there. And so we spent um, our early years having the most fantastic learning, basically outside of our home. I used to tell people we weren't home educators. We were out educators. We were never home. I used to mm-hmm. organize literally hundreds of field trips for the home ed community. We do maybe two a week, sometimes three, and to places like museums and factory tours and, and just about any place you can imagine. And, and I found, and I think this is a, a great thing if, if you feel that you can do it, I, I found that if you couldn't find something that you wanted, you could ring a company and say, listen, I, you know, I home educate my children and I've got some other families and, and we'd like to learn more about what you do. And, and I don't think I was ever turned down by a company. I mean, I would call just companies. We were doing a, a segment on geology and rocks and I called, (laughs) it's quite funny. I looked around for mines and quarries near where I lived and I found one and I rang up the parent company and I said, would you be interested at all in giving some children a tour of your mine? And they bent over backwards. They brought in a a bus and they brought in special safety equipment and it was fantastic. And I did the same thing with the Crown Prosecution Service when we were doing law. And and I found that, you know, exposing the children to as much breadth as possible when they were younger was fantastic. So most of our KS3 years were doing that. And I think it's a good lead into GCSEs because a lot of people feel that you must tick off all of the KS3 curriculum before you start GCSEs. And in my experience, and in many home educators' experience, that's not true. You don't need to. Uh, there are, of course, benefits to it, and I'm not going to say that there aren't. But um, And of course, specifically, I think KS3 maths, if you've managed to develop a foundation in KS3 maths, that will suit you for virtually all GCSEs. Assume good found good KS3 knowledge in terms of maths. Um, so I think it works for maths. I think for the sciences, a good KS3 understanding helps for GCS, for IGCSE science and for English. But geography, history, sociology, travel and tourism, none of those require real KS3 curriculum knowledge. So it's perfectly feasible to approach KS3 as kind of your your opportunity to broaden their horizons before you start looking at GCSEs and IGCSEs, thinking perhaps that's when things start to narrow. I also have a real bugbear with Key Stage 3. <laughs> because <laughs> I, have, I have this theory, which regular listeners will have heard of me say before, that I've got this theory that our school system used to finish more like age 14 
sort of like, I don't know, 50 years ago or something. Yeah. And then they extended it so it was compulsory age 16. And I'm convinced they put the key stage three syllabus in just to pad it out because <laughs> so much of it is just repeated. Again, I mean, the, oh. the water cycle, as an example, Yes. You know, you do the water cycle when you're five, seven, nine, <laughs> eleven, thirteen, fifteen. And all you basically do is you just do it in a very little bit more detail. And it just it feels such a pointless waste of time that it really infuriates me. And I, I can understand how children in schools get to the age of, say, 13. And they just switch off completely because they've actually heard most of the content before in some form or another. And they just think, oh, do you know what? I'm, I'm just not I'm going to gaze out the window. <laughs> I agree with you. I think averages is the same. Mean, median, and mode is covered, I think, every single year. And I mean, of all the mathematical concepts, that doesn't tend to be the one that young people struggle with a great deal. I don't know why it pops its head up all the time. Maybe um, teachers like it because it's nice and easy. So they're like, oh, we do a couple of lessons on that. That'd be a doddle. <laughs> well, I think that's a good thing. And I think in addition to your theory, my theory about KS3 is that well, and in fact, the entire curriculum is developed and was developed on the assumption that no one had access to the internet. Yeah. And yeah. so the your only access to information was going to be a teacher. And your only way to process information would be in a very linear fashion. So you couldn't possibly, as a 14-year-old, absorb concept X if you hadn't had all of these years of giving this information beforehand. Almost like a kind of recognition that you get to kind of that KS3 stage without any real powers of reasoning or deduction or any research capabilities on your own. And my favorite example was I did a field trip to um, the London, the Florence Nightingale Museum for a bunch of KS3 learners. And the woman who normally does that, the, the education team was fine. They booked it in for me and they said, that's great. And then the lady who, who does this session, the education officer who comes out dressed as Florence Nightingale, stopped down in her tracks because she normally does it to five-year-olds and she was faced with a bunch of 12-year-olds. The education team hadn't told her that we had a bunch of KS3 students. And I said to her, but there's no reason you have to learn Florence Nightingale when you're five. And in fact, if you learn about Florence Nightingale when you're five, you might forget about her. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing it. And she was quite fine and off we went. And she had a ball because she'd never had you know, a bunch of 11 and 12 year olds asking her questions. And so I think that idea that you have to do the KS3 curriculum and you have to do it or you have to do it in a particular order for most, for things like humanities, GCSEs, um, for a lot of the social sciences, KS3 is not a requirement. And I think it's, it's nice to know that you can kind of follow your child's dreams and wishes and, and strengths during those KS3 years. Um, and it's not, for the majority of subjects, it's not going to put them at a disadvantage. And, and I say to a lot of young people when they start a subject and they think, oh, uh, I didn't really ever cover that, you know, before this. Well, it might only take you the weekend to cover it at that stage, if you know what I mean. Like if you suddenly find that you do have a titchy little gap, it's likely just going to be a titchy little gap. And you can fill that in and then off you go and you're fine. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your approach is to keep the key stage three years so that they're sort of quite free when it comes to learning, so that you're still able to absorb outside influences and you're not yet in that straitjacket of GCSEs. Whereas I think my approach, and I know quite a lot of other home educators quite like this approach, is to start GCSEs quite early. So maybe in those key stage three years and spread them out. Do you see a value in that or do you prefer to keep them to keep those key stage three years, which for, for our listeners who maybe have completely out of the school system, that's age 11 through to well, sort of around about early 14s. So do you prefer to keep those years sort of separate? Well, I think what's happened is I probably misspoke. So when I say KS3, I mean the curriculum, not the age of your child, if that oh, makes sense. Oh, I see. That so I think it's perfectly sense. fine for most of KS3. Put it in a drawer and don't bother looking at it, regardless of what age your child is, is my, my goal. So that kind of part of the curriculum, I think, you know, doesn't have the importance that it necessarily is you. perceived to have. Um, in terms of young people starting GCSEs, I've had um, people start GCSEs and I GCSEs with me at age 11. I've had people do A-levels at age 14. My own son did, um, his, he wrote his first GCSE at 13. It was GCSE law when it was still available. 
which guts me that's not still available. Yeah, of all of the subjects that's politics so as well. I know, I know law and politics it's very frustrating they got rid of young those. people need to know these things it's like knowing a mortgage knowing the law and knowing politics are so vital so so he wrote GCSE law in the last year when he was 13 and so yes I think there's there's really no age in terms of you know when it's good or bad to start GCSEs lots of people start them really early because their child's ready and my young, when he wrote law, my eldest, he also wrote law with a woman who was in her 40s in the same exam center. So again, <laughs> there's no upper boundary either. Um, I think it's all when your child is ready. And I think this is the key thing. I think you know your child, you know what they're capable of. And, and the one thing I would say um, is there are a few that are best done later. And that's for maturity reasons. And we can talk about those. Um, there are a few that are best done later if it's an issue to do with further study or further education or your career. Um, but generally, the major kind of determining factor about whether or not your young person's ready to start exam-based qualifications is, are they ready to make that shift into a more kind of formal approach to learning? Because as you say, if you've been very relaxed and you've been very child-led, it does take a mind shift to get into slightly more formal learning. And also it requires, I would say for a lot of home educated young people, it requires a greater kind of time commitment and things like study skills that maybe you haven't had in your education up to that point. So you kind of have to have that mental readiness. But I think what a lot of young people do, and I think it's a great idea, is they do a starter GCSE or IGCSE. When they feel ready, go, great, let's start one, you know, and, and we'll work our way through it. And we'll work out all the kinks and you'll work out how you work through it and I'll work out how I through it. And parents get to work through the how to book an exam <laughs> situation. Yeah, which we all always... need to run up to that one. <laughs> exactly. It always puts the fear of something in everybody, the whole idea of booking exams. Um, and so it's doing a little starter subject is great because, again, it tends to be a subject that your young person is really enthusiastic about. So the general idea is that their enthusiasm will help them over any little humps or or glitches along the way because it's it's turned more formal than they might be used to. And that usually works really well. Yeah. I always find the choice of the first one or two subjects a little tricky because like you, I quite like to choose subjects that are perhaps in inverted commas easier, but also ones that the child is really passionately interested in so that their interests can sort of propel them forward with a bit of momentum but then obviously I've always got a little eye on the fact that if they do apply to university so say they absolutely adore maths and they want to sit it at 12 because they're very good at it I always worry that maybe when they apply to university six years later that they may think well that maths was taken a long time ago do you think there's an element of that for some subjects? oh most definitely absolutely for, for some subjects there's a real balancing act between when to do it and and the, the key factors in that decision are usually doing your research in terms of what further study or higher study or extra qualifications or, or careers or apprenticeships, what they need. And, and quite often a recent math is quite important. Maths. <laughs> I have to remind myself to say maths. Um, I usually get around that by saying mathematics. And then now I'm sorted. <laughs> it works. covers every country, every region if I say mathematics. <laughs> um, so normally mathematics is one of those ones that they expect to be recent. Uh, the good thing about mathematics is you can get around that by doing maths and then doing higher maths or further maths. Uh, you could also get around that by doing, say, statistics first and then doing mathematics later. So there is quite, particularly if your young person is strong in maths, um, they're not going to mind doing two maths, ideally. Um, and the other thing is that um, English can, again, you know, be one of those subjects where the more recent it is, the better. And science as well. The sciences, if that's your, your further aim, if you intend A-level sciences, leaving your sciences to later. But if you are the kind of person where science does not feature in your future and you think to yourself, you know what, I'd like to get it out of the way. I'd like to do it, get it out of the way, get that one done. And then I'm going to focus on the ones that I'm good at. So I, I'm going to maximize my grades if you're interested in maximizing grades, which again, not everybody is, rightly so. Um, so it really, it's kind of a, it's a real personal balance between what's best done later because of what you want to do in the future, 
what you're really kind of strong at now. And if you if grades, a particular grade is of importance to you, the consideration of when you, you would feel exam ready and give yourself the best shot at that grade. But the other key thing, which I'm sure you've talked about before, is the fact that a rewrite is always possible. Um, rewrites aren't really frowned upon. So if you did your starter, GCSE or IGCSE, and you got a grade back that you weren't happy with, you can always redo it. And um, your second grade is normally the one that's counted. With resits, though, you have yeah. to declare them all, don't you, in the British system? You when you're do. Applied to university. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So you have to declare them. You have to say that you've done it. Um, but in fact, so many young people do. If you think about the fact that it's if you go through the school system, if you don't pass your maths and English the first time around, you must keep resitting them. So there's loads of young people out there who have resits. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to to think that there's kind of a stigma or, or a kind of an issue with that, because I think it's much more common than people feel the idea of having two grades on your your, your forms. Very normal. So, so for you, you would say that 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 resits are a possibility for any subject if you just wanted to get a higher grade. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I know people who've re, who've resat maths, they had a seven and they're like, no, I want to go for the nine. Um, that's fine. That's great. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that at all. What about age limits? Because um, it, it, would it be possible to say, for example, do a reset when you're doing your A-levels just because you just fancied a higher grade? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the thing about age and GCSEs and IGCSEs, it, it can really depend on the exam center, first of all. So if you're using schools, um, private schools or state schools, they they often have an age requirement about when you can sit exams. Um, I'm not, that's a good, really good question. I'm trying to think about in terms of applying to UCAS and things like that. I can't, I'm not aware at the moment, I'm not aware of any reason why there would be an age limit on resitting a GCSE or an IGCSE while you're doing A-levels. I mean, lots of young people do A-levels whilst doing GCSEs. Mm. Um, and I do know, so doing them together the same uh, concurrently doesn't seem to be an issue. The one thing I would say, though, when we were kind of talking earlier about when to time them, is the idea of how many you've done at a time can be really important as well. This is the thing. So if you're saving some till later, it's really important for many further education or higher education institutions that you've done at least three in a go. There's a, the idea, what they want to be able to assess is whether or not you can handle a heavy workload, whether or not you can handle, you know, the pressure and requirements of, of studying multiple things. I thought that was just A-level. Is that well, GCC as well? It's come up with a number of young people and families, the idea that, you know, you haven't experienced the same pressure as someone at school who's gone through 10 or 12. So if you can, again, it's really, I think, for most parents and guardians, it's about trying to give your young person, you know, the foundation that's going to be best for them. And, and it's, <laughs> it's what adds to all our stress and worry. The fact that we, you know, kind of worry, our, our, do we have all the ducks in a row? Have we given them every possible chance that they can have? Um, but, it, but it's one of those things that if you think, well, I don't want it ever to come back and be a negative, then if you can try to make sure that they've gotten three to go, three to go in the last year, then it's not going to do, it's not going to do you any harm in terms of moving forward. Is there a kind of sweet spot with the amount of GCSEs you should do? Well, it really, um, gosh, it really, again, kind of depends on the young person and what their future goals are. Generally, in my experience, five to six works well for most young people. The whole reason schools do 10 to 12 is because the way that they manage through the school system and they don't want to necessarily feel that they're limiting young people down to you know such a few number of subjects and so it's a it's the idea of 10 and 12 is kind of based on the idea that you don't narrow yourself down to a levels the cynic in me also wonders whether it's because the more they do the more chances the school has of getting higher grades 
I think <laughs> I think there's some merit to that, absolutely, because of course, what you can do is if you're monitoring a younger person's progress, you can always suggest that they drop or eliminate a few along the way so that again, yeah, they're concentrating on some subjects and you're going to maximize their chances of success. I think the whole idea of schools and grades is is such a such a thorny issue and particularly you know in the last couple of years with tags with teacher assessed grades and not having exams I think yeah we're all a little bit cynical about how how schools kind of juggle things in and whose interest they juggle things yeah um, I mean coronavirus was quite eye-opening I think for home educators because I know that I didn't know much about the current school system and during coronavirus, we all needed to find out quite a lot more about it because we were we were finding out what teachers were doing with their classes in order to get the teacher assessed grades. And I actually knew a couple of children who are similar age to my son, and they were doing their GCSEs at a school. And it was such a different experience for them. They were, you know, they were being given the papers like the night before and things like that. And my son was sort of, there he was with his independent exam center, sort of like, having to open on video, like open a sealed envelope, send <laughs> it back, send it back, sort of scanned back within five minutes of the end of the exam. And then the 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 chaps I knew here at school who were sort of 15, 16, they were being given the paper like over the weekend and things. Like that. <laughs> yeah. I know many stories like that as well. Absolutely. I know many stories where you it was just so unfair, really. It's just the, the word we hate to use, but it's, you know, appropriate. It's just so unfair when you looked at how many schools, and again, not all, you, you know, don't want to wipe everybody with the same brush, but so many schools seem to be playing the system to their advantage. Um, whereas, you know, home educators couldn't do the same thing. But I would also say, it, frustratingly, for one of my children who was doing a 14 to 16 program, it actually worked against him because his teacher, um, used a lot of his assignments from earlier on in the year when he didn't wasn't doing so well so instead mm. of him being able to rely on the exam and having built his knowledge up over the year so his exam would me would have measured what he knew in june he had ended up with a much lower grade because a lot of earlier assessments was, were included and and he was gutted because he knew he could have done better on if it had just been the exam so yeah we had the same thing actually because for one of the certified grades, they brought the assessment date very early. It was like um, beginning of April. And my son, who likes to study very intensely for a short period, so he, I think it was economics, he only really wanted to do about three months worth of study. And of course, that took out about a month and a half of his of his study time. So he yeah. ended up only being able to study for six weeks, the whole subject, <gasps> because we'd assumed the exam would be in May. So then yes. it just goes to can catch you out. <laughs> exactly. Luckily, we're back, I think, in a certain amount of normality when it comes to when it comes to GCSEs and coronavirus now. So we were talking a little bit about what subjects you would recommend to start with. And it was the ones that may be uh, having a little like a trial one where you a trial run with a trial one where you, <laughs> you take one subject and you and you sit that nice and early. Are there any subjects that you think are good to start with? So I think that's a good question because I think what makes a subject good to start with or good to end with is really based on a, a number of factors. So the first thing you have is, is the content itself and whether that content requires a particular level of maturity or not. And there are some subjects, I would say um, RS and sociology, don't tend to don't tend to lend themselves well to someone who's on the younger end of the spectrum. That's, again, there are always exceptions to the rule, of course. But so depending on the kind of maturity of the content and, and kind of how, how much your exposure to the world is, has been quite broad can bump some subjects to, to ideally be best done a little bit later. So that's kind of one thing to think about. So I would, I would definitely put RS in, in sociology as not being great early starters. And you then look at the exam layout, the exam style and the question style. How long are the questions? Are they essay type questions? And there are some subjects that are much more essay type than others. So again, the more essay type it is, the more I would kind of lend that towards later subjects. And then you've got the kind of interest and passion and enthusiasm for the subject. And for a lot of young people, those are the, the non-traditional ones. So in terms of the early starters, 
there are some which um which quite consistently prove to be good early starters. Environmental management is a good one because it's a topic that many young people are interested in and they're enthusiastic about it and they've watched lots of Attenborough documentaries and and you know they they've they feel quite you know connected to the topic. So that tends to be good and good early starter. Number one because it's something young people tend to be enthusiastic about. The exam structure is quite accessible. So you're not facing 12 mark essay questions, which is quite nice to work your way up to that as opposed to be faced with that right from the beginning. And the content's not overly mature, if you know, get my understanding. It doesn't, it's not concepts that you have to ideally have been on the planet for a few more extra years that would help you out. So environmental management is like that. Um, travel and tourism. I think a lot of young people go, what I can do at GCSE and travel and tourism. So it's an IGCSE. Again, it's a really interesting um, subject. They've changed the syllabus recently and the syllabus is, is a lot more based around sustainable tourism and they've dropped a big chunk of the geography that was in it. So it, again, it makes it quite accessible. It doesn't have lots of the long essay questions that um, it's nice to work your way up to. So it's also a, it's a similar structure, isn't it, to environmental management because it's the same exam board. So the paper is designed very similarly. So if you know it, environmental management papers, you sort of know what you're getting with travel and tourism, don't you? You do, exactly. The CIA papers, and I think all the exam boards are like that. They, they tend to have a kind of similar flow, a similar structure. So once you get used to that and, and once you get used to looking at things like mark schemes and examiner reports and trying to anticipate your exam skills, what do you need to do to get the the higher band of marks. Again, they're all kind of written. They follow the same flow, which is nice. I recorded a podcast on, it was an exam hacks podcast. And in it, uh, Chitana said that if you're doing environmental management, then you can do travel and tourism and you can do business studies. And the three have such a crossover that actually you're only doing about a GCSE and a half of content and you get three GCSEs because there's so much crossover. And I thought it was very interesting. And so my, my daughter's sitting environmental management this summer. And so I, I thought I'd give it a try. And I printed off a travel and tourism paper last week and I got her to sit a travel and tourism paper, having done no study at all, not watched any videos on it, nothing at all. And she got an A. And it goes to show how much crossover there is and also just how much common sense there kind of is in, in some of these subjects. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's changing a little bit now that TNT, the syllabus, has changed. So the great thing about travel and tourism is it now has more sustainable development in it. So it's more going to be more overlap with environmental management. It's always had a business element to it. So it has always overlapped with business, particularly marketing. It's the marketing section, a little bit of finance where they overlap nicely. TNT used to really overlap nicely with geography. It had a massive chunk of geography in it, but that's the bit that they've bumped out. So I would say it's kind of got less than that. But the great thing is that happens in so many subjects. I mean, psychology overlaps with human biology and biology quite nicely. There's an overlap in content. Um, business and economics overlap a little bit. They're really not very similar at all because economics is a social science but they do overlap in some areas. So you can, I think it's a, it's a really good point. I think if you can find two GCSEs or IGCSEs that overlap, it is absolutely, it's so efficient. Such an efficient way of studying. My young, my oldest child, he did the same as your daughter. He was studying geography at uh, college, doing really well. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sign you up for environmental management because I'll bet you can ace that paper just with geography. And he did. Again, he didn't really do anything extra for it. Um, and geography got him through it. So, yeah, and that makes kind of um, environmental management a great starter. We interrupt this broadcast to remind you to like and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to join our Home Education Matters Facebook group where you can find details on all our podcasts, any links or resources mentioned, chat to our guests, request upcoming podcasts, and even come on the podcast yourself. Do join us over there. What about children who are maybe quite STEMI, <laughs> so mm -hmm. like science-y science and maths-y? Are there good early subjects for them? That's a good question. So my one of my favorite ones for them is statistics, because I think statistics is a is a misunderstood um, topic. The statistics syllabus that I'm familiar with is essentially it's half research methods and it's half GCSE maths. And it's not the most challenging bit of GCSE maths, if that makes sense. So if you do statistics early on, you're not looking at a, an exam paper that has loads of essay questions. 
which is great. So you can kind of get your through yourself through the, the, the process of a GCSE without long essay questions. And you're covering all the research methods that are going to be applicable to every science and social science and even the earth sciences that you come across. Yeah. And you're covering the content for early GCSE math. Great. You know, again, you've got that overlap with, with two with those, those STEM streams, as you said, and you've got a GCSE, you know, qualification to boot. Yeah, my it. son did my son did statistics at 13 and he said that it was useful for for you know a, a good half of his GCSEs including his GCSE maths and even now when he's doing A-level maths he says that there's still a crossover with his statistics that he oh, did at 13. It's fantastic mm. yeah I think it's really helpful and I think a lot of people get put off by statistics because they think about things like probability and they think about the mathematical side of things but when it comes to having that foundation in research methods, it's so useful and so important um, because, again, lots of us going through those KS3 stages, we do loads of science and we do loads of experiments at home, but we don't necessarily go through all the terminology and all the, the scientific method part of all of that kind of home experimentation. So if you can get that and get that early on, then it's a really good foundation moving forward. Um, sometimes... English language can be a really good one to start with. Again, you know, if you're going on to, you know, further qualifications where, you know, having the English GCSE is great, um, but it's not, you know, you're going to be looking at, like you say, STEM or something like that is your kind of future in A-levels. If you like English and if you're good at English and you're like, yes, I'm going to get my English language out of the way, great. Because again, you could always do English literature further on. Well, English literature isn't considered one of the core ones. Um, but getting English, English language done, if you love English and if you love reading and creative writing and, and you, that's a really kind of positive experience for you, it can be a nice early one if that kind of suits you. So, and then we were kind of talking about some of the more kind of strange and and kind of weird and, and wonderful ones that are there. And I think travel and tourism kind of goes into that camp. There's global citizenship. That's an interesting one. Again, you know, you might have a, a kind of young activist at home. And you might, they might be really interested in that. There's, There's no things, group project or anything for global citizenship. There is a project, but it is now um, just embedded within the exam papers. If that makes okay, sense. so it's like astronomy in that way. You don't need to necessarily have, you don't need to have submitted it to be assessed. For exactly. Yes, precisely. Um, and I'm trying to think about what other ones there. Oh, I mean, computing science. Computing science might be one that you want to start with early. Again, if you've been coding and you know you've worked your way through Scratch and all of you know all of the things that are available to you as you're kind of working through computer skills, that's one that you can do early. So really, I do think. I think it comes down to something that's not heavy in essay style questions so that you can spend a lot of time feeling comfortable and confident in the idea of getting yourself through a GCSE and give yourself yourself some time to develop what are called exam skills. Because in a really curious way, every exam board and every exam has very specific requirements about how you write your answers. And it's so frustrating, particularly for any young person with SEND. It seems so illogical and it, it, it's so frustrating. They, they say, well, but I wrote the right answer. Like I wrote accurate, correct things that answered that question. And then you have to say, well, the exam board says that you must have to do it in this order with these connectives and this. And the idea that you've got to develop those exam skills. Again, if you can give yourself some time to develop exam skills as you're going through them, doing that kind of early one and then maybe some later ones, you're just going to kind of develop all of that experience, which is good to, to build up. We got caught out with that with history because my son, it was always his favourite subject for years. He used to go to sleep with like history textbooks by his bed. Aww. And so I thought at about age 13, I thought he's ready for history. And then we sat some sat some past papers and he was getting very low marks but his content he knew absolutely all the content but he couldn't get the exam technique right and it's so like you say it's so specific some subjects that you have to it's really about what is on the mark scheme and what they're expecting when it comes to the answers and so we did a whole year on exam technique and even so he only got i think it was a six which for him was very low because he he sort of like has got quite high marks for his others and it was purely because he wasn't 
there's a system when it comes to answering some questions, particularly history is a good example of this, where school children tend to be very much trained in the system. So the teacher trains them in this PEE system, make a make your point, evaluate it, and explain how it answers the question. And you just put and then you have a you have an L which is link it to the like link it to the previous paragraph or the next paragraph. And it's and it's this very formulaic system of answering papers. And I he found that very difficult because he just had all this content and he just wanted to answer the question in his own way. And and he found history very limiting in that way because it was it did feel like you he was trying to jump through a very narrow examiner's hoop. Yep, absolutely. It it is so consistent and it's Again, it's something that I cover right from the beginning. I say, this is the content and we're going to learn the content and these are the hoops <laughs> and I'll tell you what the hoops are and I'll tell you how to jump through them. And it's a, and I do it exactly in the same way. There's a P, an E, an E, there's an L. This is how you do it. But then just to make young people's lives slightly more frustrating, which is great of the exam boards, it differs by subject. So you learn what to do in history and then what you need to do in psychology will be slightly different or what you need to do in English. My the most frustrating one is what the word conclusion means, because a conclusion on an English paper is not written in the same way that a conclusion in economics would be written. And if you write the same, if you summarize what you've previously said on an economics conclusion, if you summarize what you've previously said, you've drawn it all together, you sort of restate your consistent argument, you'll get zero marks for it because that's not what they want in a conclusion. <laughs> so now you've got to learn what they want you to do. So for a lot yeah, of young people, it is, especially if you're a very, very kind of logical, linear person. But it comes down to the fact that, well, you know, it's, it's part of the process. You only have to do it while you're doing GCSEs. It's one of those frustrations. But, you know, ev we all kind of get over the hump and we go, right, we'll learn how to jump through the hoops and we'll do it. And then off we go and we've got kind of armed with our, our certificates and our pieces of paper that we wanted, which is really what we're after. So. We were talking a little bit about the order of subjects. What about sciences? Is there an order that you would that you would recommend for taking the four sciences if you include astronomy in there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, normally the order would be based on things like overlaps. Are you doing another subject that overlaps well or have you covered another subject first? So biology and psychology have lovely overlaps. Biology also has some overlap with, I'm trying to think, I think it might be environmental management because I was talking about oil spills and fish stocks the other day with someone and they were doing it in biology, whereas we were doing it in a completely other subject. So biology has really good overlaps. Um, physics overlaps very well with maths. Chemistry overlaps very nicely with things like statistics. So in terms of, is there a, on their own, is there a particular order that works well? Not specifically, but again, you might want to do the one earlier that you're most interested in. You might want to do the one earlier if it overlaps with something else. Or in terms of your further study, if you're thinking, I really want to do that one at A level, then leave the IGCSE to last. Because if you leave it to last, number one, you've probably got a higher chance of a better grade. And number two, you've got that kind of recency effect that you know might be important when it comes to A-levels. But other than that, not necessarily a, a particular order to do them in. And, and astronomy, I'm glad you mentioned that one, because astronomy is a very maths heavy. It surprises a lot of people. It's quite mathematical. It's quite hard it's... maths as well, isn't it? <laughs> Is. I don't want to put anybody off, but it really is. Um, so I would say that, you know, make sure you've got good foundation maths before you approach astronomy, because you don't want it to be the thing, you know, that kind of takes away from your love of, of learning the content. And, and that happens to the best of us. You know, we, we really love the content when we start. And then by the time we get to the end, maybe we've kind of lost a little bit of our enthusiasm. And that's unfortunate. It does happen. And so if you can help your young person through that, you know, make that less likely, the better. So, yes, I think, um, you know, make sure that your math, GCSE level maths is feeling quite strong before you approach astronomy. Yes, for sure. I think I think one thing that can unless you're pursuing the very highest grades, I think it's OK also to sort of say to your child, well, you know, don't worry too much about 
the maths bit you know just sort of do all the do all the other stuff i know my daughter's doing environmental management she's not very good at maths and doesn't really like it and so she has a good go at the graphs and things like that but quite often particularly with environmental management it's only a handful of marks that is the maths and i and she would spend the entire hour and a half of the exam on the maths otherwise because hey. it takes her so long to do it so so we've sort of just said we'll just you know don't worry about that just like skip those questions and concentrate on the ones you like because she you know she's not looking for this sort of super high grade and i think sometimes if you're not looking for the very top grades you can sort of ease off a little bit on some of those bits and then you can keep that balance between them getting the gcse but also retaining their love for the subject and i think to build on that because that's spot on i think in in many many subjects you can get the higher band and still entirely ignore a topic because i think the moment you show your young person what grade boundaries are and how it works. And they realize that you don't need to get 80% of the questions correct to get a nine. In fact, in some subjects, you only need to get 57% of all of the questions correct to get a nine. They, it's suddenly, it's not a license to, 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 to lay off, but they suddenly, it's so, you know, it's so freeing because they suddenly realize I don't have to be perfect to get as what is perceived as a perfect grade. They're not the same things. A high grade is not the same as getting, you know, an almost perfect paper. Sure, those things are lovely and, and great to get if that's what you're aiming for. But it is it is so possible. And I, I in business is another one. In business, the maths can sometimes be really frustrating and really annoying for young people. And it's not their strengths. And I'll be honest, it is not mine. <laughs> Not at all. If there's one bit I was going to avoid, it would be the maths. Um, and you can still get a nine and not answer those questions, not do well on those questions, because if you look at the grade boundaries, you realize, well, actually, I can achieve that. I can achieve that percentage. And I think that, that again, working through that process with young people, that's one of the, those things that you get at the start when you, if you're doing one at the start or something like that, is you you get the opportunity to go through grade boundaries and and kind of understand how they work and, and it makes things more achievable. And I think if you have a young person who suffers from stress and anxiety, and that goes along with things like perfectionism and procrastination, because procrastination stems very naturally from perfectionism, because if you're worried about how perfect you can do it, don't do it. Just, just don't, don't start, put it off, put it off, put it off, because it's so frightening. Um, it, it's quite freeing to to say that actually all of those grades are possible and and it doesn't mean that you have to master every single skill that's on the syllabus it's nice to do but it's not necessary talking of grade boundaries do you think there's a case for sitting the foundation levels for any of these exams because obviously there the the grade boundaries are much higher in order to in order to get your pass yeah i mean i think that's interesting there're not a lot of subjects that offer things in tiers. There's only a few that do offer a kind of foundation tier versus higher. And I think, again, it comes back to um, what young people are aiming for and things like confidence. And I think you have to balance the idea of confidence and grades. And I think you have to also look at what you need for the future, you know, what, what your future path looks like, looks like. And there's certainly, again, there's nothing stopping you from your first one being foundation and then doing a reset that's higher. I think, as you said, I, the, usually the best way of kind of navigating through that is doing some past papers. Do the past papers, do a foundation one, do a hire. Think about your young person's kind of mental health, how stressful they're finding the situation, how anxious they are, and, and think about their, their future goals. Um, and in most cases, you know, things aren't always, you know, things aren't set in stone. We know, don't we? We know so many different ways of achieving the same thing. Um, you know, and, and it's part of that school ethos that this is your one chance. You have this one year, this one time frame. You must determine your entire future. It all counts on this. <laughs> and it's nice to go, no, that's not true. You know, your entire future does not depend on how you perform over these next six weeks. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do. In addition to that, are there any subjects that you would consider sort of vital or necessary subjects to take at GCSE? Well, my personal opinion is entirely different from <laughs> what the education system says, because well, I go back to law and politics and those kinds of things. I, I think for most um, for most colleges and universities, it's the three core. It's English language, 
mathematics, and one of the sciences. And by sciences, they mean physics, chemistry, biology, or human biology. Um, and those are really considered the core. And my, as a really good example, my eldest son wanted to do geography at A level. And he got a nine in his geography GCSE, and they didn't care. They didn't even want it on the form. They just wanted to know his English maths and science and chemistry. They, it, it, even though it was the same subject, it just it didn't even register on their radar. There was a kind of very, and that was when he went off to, to sixth form. There was kind of a very prescribed approach. And, and I think, I think it's, really, it's really useful to kind of approach your local college or sixth form, even if your child doesn't intend on going there. It's really useful to approach them and ask them what their entry requirements are and to be really kind of, you know, open and honest. Because if you think to yourself, well, if we needed to change for whatever reason, things happen in our lives where we have to change course. It's always nice to know that kind of as we were saying at the beginning, that you've got your child set up, that they could do that, follow that path if, if for some reason they needed to. And, and so it's really those kind of core three that are seen as being the key ones. But that is not to say that there aren't young people who go off and achieve amazing things and, you know, get entry into all sorts of different colleges and, and universities and apprenticeships by not having those, you know, there are certainly ways of doing it, but if, if you were going to say which ones are required, it's really that kind of standard, what the government says, those three. What about what about your favorite ones then? So apart from law and politics, which they stole away from us, <laughs> what what would be your like top five favorite GCSEs for children? Oh golly, okay, that's a great question. So number one, and this might be a bit of a shocker, number one is economics, because economics is the most practical, real life, everyday subject that the number of times young people just their jaws, jaws hit the floor when they realize that economics is about what is important in their lives every day, how much money they earn at work, how much they pay for their interest on their mortgage. When if you're gonna, I was gonna say, if you're gonna grow up to be an adult, okay, <laughs> we all grow up to be adults. <laughs> when you grow up to be an adult and you, you're faced with all of these impacts on your life, if you've studied economics, you know how all of this works and you can turn on the TV and suddenly the news makes sense. And when they say, that they're raising interest rates in order to combat inflation, you understand what that means and why that works. And, and because you understand the core fundamentals of how jobs and businesses and government policy works, it also means things like you're much, a much more informed voter. It means that when you're expected to vote, you now understand more about why these policies are put in place and what they're meant to do. And I just think in terms of making a really well-rounded person who understands that that bit of the world, which is about how money moves itself around the economy. Um, economics is a social science. People tend to lump it in with things like business and accounting, but it's not. If you're gonna lump it in with anything, you lump it in with sociology because it's about humans and human behavior. Um, and it's incredibly useful and, and vital and valuable. So, and I, I would say probably, it's quite interesting, probably about 80% of the young people I know who did GCSE economics then do it at A level. It's incredibly compelling. Like once you're in it, you're like, oh, I love this. This is amazing. It's, it's like this whole window to the world that you didn't know existed. If you know, you know, in the Truman show, you know, when Truman ends up with the boat against the wall and then he goes up the stairs and he opens the door to the rest of the world. It's like that, you know, <laughs> suddenly. You know, this whole opportunity. So I, I, economics is up there because I think it's a real life subject. Um, psychology is one I would put at the top because it overlaps with so many different careers. Never mind other GCSEs, which it does. It overlaps with so many careers. If you want to be a graphic designer, understanding perception is really important. If you want to be a, a police officer, crime understanding crime and deviance is important. If you want to work in business and you want to understand whether or not your employees are going to be motivated by a pay rise or a free company gym membership, you will know more if you would study psychology. Because again, it's kind of a people-based one. So those ones, um, English language is incredibly value. And I don't, valuable. I don't know if you found this when it came to um, law, but I was 
doing a whole segment on law and taking a lot of home ed kids on um, different field trips. And we went to Reading University and we talked to the law department there. And she said, um, English language and English literature are the core requirements to come and study law at university because it's your ability to formulate your thoughts and it's your ability to articulate yourself. And, and she said, law is not black and white. If you like subjects that are black and white, things like maths and the sciences, then probably law is not for you because there's, it's just gray. Um, so English, um, you know, for many different careers, English is, is such a kind of strong one. I was talking to someone the other day whose young person wants to be a midwife. And um, again, they suggested social sciences being really valuable and really useful. Um, I know an adult who's in the military doing environmental management. And I think this is really interesting. So her, her, there's an officer on board the ship that she's on who's responsible for their kind of career development. Um, and this officer specifically said, we, we want um, our personnel uh, to do sub extra subjects like environmental management because it's that kind of relationship of you and the world. So I think in a vague kind of way, I'd say economics, psychology, English language, environmental management or global citizenship, one of those, which is about understanding kind of world that we're in. And then something fun, something brilliant, something, you know, that's creative. And I, I think in the home ed world for so long, we've been told, oh, you can't do the creative ones, you know, with a lot of that teeth drying. Oh, don't mention GCS art. But, <laughs> you know, oh, no. Um, but there are, we have so many brilliant kind of entrepreneurial minds in the home ed community. There, there are lots of home editors who offer fantastic courses and tutoring in the traditional subjects, but you've got companies like the, uh, that I don't have anything to do with. You've got companies like Technology Triumphs and Aced Art, which are now trying to offer creative qualifications because it, it's a gap and it's a gap that, that young people, you know, deserve to, to have an opportunity to fill. And so I, did I think- a, I did oh. a podcast with Deborah from Aced Art hmm. and they're starting physical education GCSE or physical one, education yes. qualification, which for years, like you say, that intake of breath was always the one where can't do that if you're home educate. And it's so nice now to have a provider who's offering that. Exactly. Spot on. And so I think um, I think giving yourself that freedom to, to follow your creative pursuits. I mean, I unfortunately, I grew up in a household where <laughs> in my household, my parents only valued the intellectual studies and both my sister and myself are, are kind of artists. And we never really had the chance to pursue it. And I think that's that's kind of the one thing that we always say to ourselves as, as home ed parents is that we want, you know, our young people to be able to thrive with whatever their talent is. And so if you can find a, a way to open that door, whether it's art or sport or drama, I mean, Lambda qualifications have UCAS points, I think above grade six, level six, same things with um Music, if you can't do the music GCSE or IGCCSE because your kid's not at doing a 14 to 16 program at a college or something, Trinity, you know, the Trinity qualifications, I think, again, above level six, they have UCAS points. So they tend to be, you know, more expensive. I'm, I'm not in any way sneezing at the fact that the <laughs> trying to do some of those creative, you know, or kind of sporty qualifications seem to be more expensive. But if that's your young person's talent and, and you can find a way of, of letting them um, get a qualification in that, I think that's brilliant. I think Tutors and Exam is, is now doing food tech as well, which I think is a really? great one. Yeah, I think, I think it's an OCR qualification from maybe this year because, again, Tutors and Exams, which is only one of the other exam centers are available. <laughs> um, <laughs> they are. <laughs> they are. Many of them out there. Um, but Tutors and Exams, again, is, it tries to fill some of these little kind of niches and these little gaps um, where you've got these non-exam assessments. And, and food, um, there's still many that are off limits. You know, there are things like mechanics and things like that that, um, you know, if you don't have access to a BTEC or something like that, it's very difficult to get a qualification out. But those things are improving, I think, was what I was trying to say. And that's, um, you know, it's one of the great things about the home ed community is if we suddenly find that there's a new thing available, we'll all tell each other and make sure that, you know, we can promote it as much as possible. 
marine science, natural history. They're classics, aren't they, that are now coming to GCSE that everyone's very excited about. Yeah, exactly. I think marine science is available for exams next year. So I think lots of people are starting on that one. The frustration with that, I think a lot of people would say is um, things like what kind of materials are there? Let's say you're going to self-study and you're going to take the DIY approach and you're not looking for a tutor or a course. People always worry with a new subject, what materials are out there. But we have such great resources in the community like the exam wiki. I don't think marine science is on the exam wiki yet. I have a feeling it will be soon. But it overlaps with things like biology. It overlaps with, um, I think it overlaps not too much with EM, environmental management, but a little bit. So, so when you're starting something out, you end up having to kind of pick and choose and piece things together. And, you know, the, again, we're so good at kind of creating little groups on Facebook that are subject specific and everybody starts to share their details and their knowledge in there. So I think that's starting to happen with marine science and I, natural history. I think we're still a couple of years away from that. There's talk of an assignment, I think, isn't there? Yeah. Um, but if we're lucky, if we're lucky again, what we'll have is, you know, an exam center or someone kind of step in with the capabilities. What we did with astronomy is we developed sort of us at homemade education. We developed a process with tutors and exams that got at Excel's approval. What that means is when I have somebody who lives at a different part of the country and they can't access tutors and exams, I can say, well, we have a process. It's been approved through tutors and exams and at Excel. So this is, I'll give the process to your exams officer. And if your exams officer signs it off, bingo, then we've sorted that problem. And I think that's the kind of thing that, again, kind of does happen. I think if you can work your way through the system once and worry, figure out how to get that box ticked, then other exam centers and other solutions will kind of present themselves. So I think we'll I get think you're, I think you're so right as well that the homemade community is all about trying to find ways to make things accessible for us that maybe aren't accessible. And we're, we're very good at at sort of uh, coming up with these routes in. So can you tell us a little bit about what your company offers and how that, how your company helps us uh, sort of find these sort of like clever routes into different subjects? So that's a good question. So essentially we offer as many GCSE and IGC level courses as we can that are as comprehensive as possible, that include as many of the materials and the information so you don't need to buy very much else, if anything, at a really affordable price, because, you know, we all understand just how important things like value are um, when it comes to GCSEs and because you're thinking about you've got exam fees on top of it, et cetera, et cetera. So, but we all started out with, and I think a lot of people start out like this, you start out where you think, you know, you want your young person to have the very best chance at success on that particular subject. And how can you enable for that for them? What materials do they need to, what do they need what exam skills do they need and put together a package to deliver that and so we all basically cover our passion I mean my passions are the social sciences and humanities and Caitlin who's my English and history partner she's uh she's her new she's got she has a new book coming out I mean she's been a teacher and examiner for many years but she's got a new book coming out and she's doing her PhD and she's judging a poetry contest and you know her passion and love is English and and Lucy's the same in terms of sciences. You know, if there's anybody chomping at the bit for marine science and natural history, it's, <laughs> it's Lucy. They will appear on, on the website quite soon. Um, and so we're just so passionate, number one, about what we do, but number two, about being able to give young people the best chance at success um, and kind of really give them a leg up. And so I also do things like I, I run a, a number of different Facebook groups that are subject specific. And one of the things that I constantly do on those Facebook groups is I share current events, things like news stories or documentaries or video links that help young people understand the topic. Because reading the textbook, well, you know, yes, that's got the great information, but we all know that just reading text isn't necessarily the best way to learn. <laughs> and not certainly not for a lot of people, young people who who learn in different ways and, and in different styles. And so I think that, you know, I'm constantly mining the internet and websites and news websites for, for stories and, and videos and, and materials that bring these subjects to life. Because it comes back to what we were saying earlier about not wanting your young person to lose their enthusiasm. And 
And I think it's hard to expect young people to do that. However much I say to people all the time, have you read the news today? Have you seen the news article about what's happened with Morrison's? And they go, no, I'm, I'm a 16 year old. I'm not normally browsing the news, looking for news stories. <laughs> so I do that for them. <laughs> and I'll say this, this is the story you want to read. It's, it's exactly what we were talking about brought to life. Um, environmental management is a good one. Uh, there was a brilliant um, photo essay in the Guardian this week about an oil spill. Um, and what better way to bring an oil spill to life than look at the pictures of the actual kind of situation and the consequences. And so the idea of being able to kind of share and, and empower young people, um, whether they're, they're learning with a course or, or whether they're, they're studying themselves so that they can, again, kind of have that extra information to, to bring these topics to life, I, I think is something that I think is really important. And um, then we also do other things like access arrangements. I mean, we haven't talked very much about that today if at all, but I would say in my experience, at least 50% of home educators are home educating because of some aspect of SEND, whether it's officially diagnosed or not. And the idea that your young person could be disadvantaged going through GCSEs or IGCSEs because of that means that access arrangements are so, so really important. And one of the benefits of using someone like home education is the fact that we can support access arrangements applications because one of the things that the exams officer will look for is evidence of your young person's normal way of working in inverted commas and they're usually not willing to take a parent's word for that which is quite odd because you'd think the only person who really knows your kid's normal way of working is you <laughs> you know it's kind of like why you can't sign your own child's passport I, it's my child. I'm the person who knows them best, but it kind of follows that same philosophy, doesn't it? And so quite often I'm writing letters and, and providing support so that um, I can say, no, this is how this young person learns. And in terms of do they need extra time or do they need a scribe or they do need, need a reader? It's, it's unfortunate. And I'm not saying it's, it's the way the system should be, but if you need an independent person to come in and, and substantiate you know, your child's needs, it's always nice to have someone who can do that for you. So we can do that. And, and we also do things like making sure our materials are dyslexia friendly. Although it's quite interesting, again, this kind of balancing send and how you can create materials. I, I normally make sure that my materials are all quite low contrast. So I use a, a low contrast font and low contrast colors. And, and then one year, in environmental management, I had two young people who had Erlen syndrome and they could only participate if there was extremely high contrast. <laughs> and so it was a really kind of fascinating way of being able to try and manipulate materials and and in different kind of parts of the course so that everybody's needs could be met. And and that's really, I think, kind of one of the goals is my one of my goals is to make sure that no matter what your young person's needs are, there's there's a really good chance, you know, that they can they can get the things that they need to do as well as they can. And it's so, it's so motivating to be part of a young person's journey and to kind of watch them kind of go through what they need and thrive. And if we go back to, you know, when teacher assessed grades for two years, we did teacher assessed grades. And I have to tell you, I mean, we worked for two years straight. We didn't have a holiday because everything that we'd meant, everything that we'd intended to do in terms of holidays got completely eaten into by by providing assessments for young people. And, and, you know, parents would say things like, well, you know, it's amazing how much of your time that this takes up. The fact that you have to do all this extra stuff in order to get our young person grades. And my, my answer is always, well, it's only, a, it's only a bit of my time, but it's that step into the future for your young person's life. So a couple of months of my time is no big deal. I mean, you know, that, that fades away into nothingness, but that's what, as we all knew, you know, so many young people during TAGS were worried about being left behind. And frankly, some were, you know, the system failed a lot of young people. And so we worked our buns off to try and make sure that none of our young people would be left behind. And if we could pass someone to someone else and get them sorted and tutors and exams, again, we're kind of picking people up at the last minute going, oh, quickly, we'll see if we can get you a tutor and quickly if we can get you a tutor, get everybody through. So manic. That's again, that's what we home educators are like, aren't we? You know, we're, we're a very kind of, you know, cohesive group. And if we can make net safety nets for each other or, 
we'll make little slingshots <laughs> where we can help propel people into the future in a better way we can. And so where can our listeners find you on your websites or social media? Would you like to tell us where they can find you? So we have a website, which is www.homemadeeducation.com. And everything's there and available and in a, in a kind of nice, easy to use visual kind of way. I'm on Facebook quite a bit. I'm not on Instagram very much. I am. Um, but usually the best way to, to find me is on Facebook, either as Home Ed Education or Kate Sneep um, or the website. And um, I am at my desk almost every hour of almost every day. <laughs> and so I am quite easy to get a hold of. And so your website was www.homemadeeducation.com, right? Yeah. All one word, all spelled with all the E's. So if you're thinking I've typed too many E's, no. So it's the, <laughs> it's the, it's the made education bit where you have the two E's. So homemadeeducation.com. It's the same with, with our title, Home Education Matters. It looks like there's like home education <laughs> matters. <laughs> it's just a normal amount of E's, but it just looks weird, doesn't it? Exactly. And I'm always, I never want to put things like dashes in because then, you know, you're always worried that a dash is harder to remember. And is it a big dash or a little underline? And... <laughs> Underscore and all exactly. that Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Catherine. It's been really helpful to speak to you today about all the different subjects and, and all the different advice about the order to take them in and which subjects to take first but just the whole range of subjects available to us now it's just a testimony isn't it to the home education community that we have all these providers who are working so hard to offer as many subjects as possible to us it is i agree and i think the more that we can remind people outside of the community that our young people do achieve these qualifications we are um doing the same things maybe in a slightly different way um, and our young people have, you know, are well armed in terms of the things that they need to do them well in the future. That's very true indeed. Thank you so much, Catherine. Lovely to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.